Welcome to episode four of Napaba Coffee House, presented by Napaba, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, in collaboration with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. My name is Genevieve Antono. I'm in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I'm super excited to be producing this project as part of my student fellowship with the Center on the Legal Profession. In today's episode, you will hear from our host. Lawrence Tu and our guest Alan Say. Our host Larry retired in 2020, and some of his previous roles include serving as the chief legal officer or the general counsel for CBS Corporation, Dell, and NBC Universal. Meanwhile, our guest for today, Alan, is the global chief legal officer for JLL Jones Lang LaSalle. JLL is a global professional services firm that specializes in real estate and investment management. Prior to joining JLL, Alan served as the general counsel for Petco, Churchill Downs, LG Electronics Mobilecom USA, and two startups. Alan is a graduate of Harvard Law School and UC Berkeley. I found this interview and Alan's career trajectory to be very inspiring and very impactful. I'm actually making a mental note to myself that if sometime in the future I find myself in a position where someone is offering me a really great opportunity. But I'm holding myself back because I don't feel qualified or I don't feel prepared. Then I need to come back to this interview and remind myself that even though it is scary, wonderful things and tremendous growth can happen when you dive in with both feet. So Alan became the GC of a startup after just three years at a big law firm. He then worked in a number of very different industries. He went from mobile phone manufacturing to sports and gaming,、uh, to pet care retail, to now global real estate. And obviously, all these industries are very different. And moving from one to another would really require you、uh, to stretch. But over the course of this interview, Alan says things like. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not an industry expert right off the bat. What matters is that you learn really, really fast. For me, watching Alan's interview made me want to be a bit more brave. It made me walk away with the feeling like, oh, I haven't done X yet. <laughs> anyway, so that was my main takeaway、uh, from this interview. And as usual, we're very curious to hear what were some of your main takeaways and reactions. So please be sure、uh, to leave a comment below. All right. Without any further ado, here is Larry and Alan. So, Alan, welcome to our Napapa Coffee House.、Um, you and I first met many years ago through Napapa, and over the years, we spent a lot of time talking about the role of the general counsel and also about managing one's career. So, in a way, we're going to continue that discussion today. I'm really looking forward to it.、Um, but before we get started, let me first. Thank you for taking the time and agreeing to be part of this program. Thanks, Larry, for having me. And I think you're too kind. Those are not conversations where we talked about my career. Those are conversations where I asked you, "How do I do my job?" Well, Alan, our recollections are quite different, but we'll leave it at that. Okay, so、um, let's start a little with a little bit of your personal history. I mean, tell us something about your upbringing, your you know early childhood, where you grew up, where your parents were from. To give us a sense of your personal background, so I was born in Hong Kong. Came to this country when I was seven years old. So imagine a Chinese kid who couldn't speak English growing up in the Ashbury section in San Francisco in the seventies,、um, and went to school in San Francisco.、Uh, went to Berkeley for college, and then went to the East Coast. Went to Harvard for for law school. 
So seven-year-old Hong Kong kid living in Haight-Ashbury. So were you like a seven-year-old hippie? I didn't even understand what a hippie was. You know, it's uh, my entire upbringing, my view of the United States, my view of pop culture, I think, came from the television. So if it, uh, if it wasn't shown in the A-team with different strokes, I didn't know it. So what, what brought your parents to the U.S.? Or what, why did you guys come as a family? So it's a classic land opportunity. Um, in Chinese, we call it Go Mountain, Gamsan. Um, so my parents um, both were uh, medical stu- students in China, and, and they both escaped China and landed in Hong Kong um, when communism started taking root in China. And they actually met in Hong Kong. So my dad was a pharmaceutical rep. My mom was a nurse. And basically, my dad hit on my mom uh, during his rounds. And they met there. And um, because of their views on communist, uh, communism, they did not want their boys growing up in that. So in 1978, they had the forethought to leave before 1997, the changeover, because they wanted to make sure they got a head start. They didn't want to, um, us growing up there. So that's why we left Hong Kong and came to this country. I mean, do you think of Hong Kong as your, where you grew up, or is it really more San Francisco? I think both. I think for a lot of us, it's a, it's a foot in both worlds, both doors. I definitely have memories of growing up in Hong Kong, but I was seven. So um, my older brother was 10, so I had a little more uh, roots there. I don't have any friends from those days, but I definitely remember Hong Kong growing up in Hong Kong, and good and bad of that. But I definitely have a whole lot of memories from my childhood in, in San Francisco um, in the U.S. So as a, as a recent immigrant kid to the U.S. Uh, growing up in San Francisco, did you have favorite sports or hobbies, or how did you spend your free time besides going to school? Well, lots of sports, right? Uh, it's a bad subject right now because we just finished the Super Bowl yesterday, um, and I'm a big San Francisco 49ers fan. So one of my earliest memories was the catch um, you know, from the 49ers in 1980. That was uh, my introduction to sports. And all my teams are San Francisco Bay Area teams. I've probably spent way too much money chasing them and following them around the country in the last dozen years. So on to Berkeley, uh, where I think you studied political science and economics. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. When you were in college, as you were, as you were getting through college and emerging from the other side of it, did you have a clear sense of what you wanted to do with your life? Um, yes. Yes and no. I definitely wanted to be a lawyer. I had no clue what a lawyer was, right? I mean, my, my view of being a lawyer was from LA Law, right? Um, was in a courtroom like Arnie Becker. Um, but I definitely knew I wanted to be a, a lawyer um, for a number of reasons. There's some of that with the LA Law thing, which is a little facetious, but there's also um, from the rule of law, right? My parents came to this country because of land opportunity. They couldn't articulate what the land opportunity was until I got older and I started figuring out what was different about the United States versus China, right? The main difference in my mind um, was the rule of law, right? Um, Here, you can make investments, you can plan for the future, you can do all that because the rule of law is there um, versus the countries that that they left in China. My dad still has bitter memories of the government taking the family's lands. So um, from that aspect of it, Law was always rooted in, in how I thought about society, how I thought about this country. And a lot of different things that I do personally um, was rooted in that too. So definitely want to be a lawyer. Had some clashes with my parents about that. Um, the story is that basically I put myself to college because my parents wanted me to be an engineer or a doctor, like any good Chinese kid. And I said, no, I wanted to be a lawyer. 
and they thought I was going to starve to death and they said no. So basically I paid for college. That's, uh, um, that's, and that's how I ended up at, at Berkeley and that's how I ended up paying for college and, and becoming a lawyer. So they actually cut you off financially. I mean, yes. I mean, yes and no, they didn't cut me off. They wanted yeah. to, to keep paying, to keep the strings going to, to force me to be a doctor engineer. And I cut myself off. I told them you can't make me. And they said, yes, we can. And, and no, you can't. And, you know, it's a, I was pretty uh, stubborn back then. So your interest, so your interest in law, the high principle was the rule of law and the personal role model was Arnie Becker. That's, that's a pretty good combination. <laughs> exactly. That told you, I mean, look, you and I've talked about this before. Um, you know, I didn't have any role models of lawyers growing up. I didn't know what lawyers or maybe an immigration lawyer who helped us get a citizenship papers. That was my only real, um, uh, you know, seeing a lawyer except on, on the screen, except on TV and in movies. So didn't know what a lawyer did, didn't know there was this thing called corporate law. You know, they don't do a lot of those shows on TV. So pretty much had no clue until I got into law school and started seeing what lawyers did and, and, and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, it's a lucky accident. So law school, and then from there, I think you went on uh, to practice law in a law firm for three years. And I think Silicon Valley, is that right? Or in the West Coast somewhere? Yep, I was in Silicon Valley. In the 90s, I had to do IPOs and M&As right in the, the peak of the entire cycle. So what happened to the uh, Arnie Becker, LA Law, you know, go to court and impress the jury part of law practice? So I, I, my first year summer, I was a litigator. I actually worked for a public interest law firm um, and realized very quickly that as a litigator, especially in a law firm, um, I was not going to be Arnie Becker. I was not going to be uh, sniffing a law firm. Uh, for a good five, 10 years of my life. I was going to do a lot of research, uh, spent a lot of time in the library um, and researching writing. And I, I was a, a very impatient, you know, 24, 25 year old. And I didn't want that at the same time. Uh, growing up in San Francisco, I had a lot of friends that um, were in Silicon Valley um, from college days from even my high school days. I was telling about this magical place, you know, Silicon Valley, how everyone was making their fortune and, and just, you know, doing really cool things. And so um, I spent my second year summer doing that and basically fell in love. I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to do deals. I want to be able to solve problems. And it just felt like it was the right fit for me. So after three years of law practice, I think you left for an in-house role. And then I think if I remember serves me right over the next 10 years, you, you took on three different in-house positions. Uh, each one I think greater scale, greater complexity. So tell us about that change and what motivated that since it seems like you took to M&A and IPO work quite happily, at least initially. Yeah, so the, the first role I took was with a client. It was to be a VP of strategy and general counsel in a, um, it was a unicorn before that term was, was um, used. It was a telecom equipment company um, that had a billion dollar valuation. And it was really interesting to me to do that because as an M&A lawyer, I think about M&A in three parts, picking the right company by doing the deal and integrating their, uh, their company after the deal. And as a lawyer in a law firm, I was doing the middle part and probably the most unimportant part of the deal. And I wanted to, to learn the front and the back end of it and figure out be a better lawyer from that. And that was an opportunity for me to do that. And the second part of it was also just thought, hey, maybe I wanted to do business. Maybe I want to be a CEO and really understand business. Uh, got that out of my system very quickly. Um, my first two startup roles, um, 
and that it was great, but uh, great training, but also it was also got to see the entire um, business cycle up and down um, of that and realize that I like being a lawyer. I like not having to sell. Um, you know, I like, the, I wouldn't say the purity, but just the, the not being able to be on sell mode all the time, which I saw my CEO having to do, which, you know, the part of me that was um, the business side of me had to do a little bit of that. So um, I went back into becoming a lawyer and, and after, and, and frankly, after two failed startups, I figured I was pretty good at being a lawyer for companies that didn't make any money. I needed to be a, learn how to be a lawyer for a company that actually made some money. So um, I think the third of those were, uh, from there, I think you went on to um, work at uh, Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, yeah. And that was in 2011. So what, what led to that change? You know, tell us about that transition, how that came about. Um, I was the GC for LG Electronics in the US before that. Uh, it was the division of the LG Electronics company um, based in South Korea. And um, I had no interest in moving to South Korea. So I needed to figure out what my next move was. And Churchill was a terrific company. It was, um, most people know it as the Kentucky Derby, uh, the home of the Kentucky Derby. It was also on a upward trajectory of trying to buy uh, casino and gaming properties. Um, so it was an opportunity to go and do M&A and to transform the company from being a small um, a horse racing company into a much more of an entertainment company. So today Churchill has 12 casinos, runs one of the largest sports books in the country. And um, I'm privileged and lucky enough to have played a part in, in starting that journey for Churchill. Now, was that the first job that took you out of the West Coast? Um, Job-wise, yes. Yeah. So talk about, talk about that move and that, because uh, as you know, I discussed before, every job change is also potentially a family relocation change. And so those are quite complicated and involve multiple variables. So how did you navigate that in terms of the change from the West Coast to Louisville, Kentucky? So I think the change was a lot harder for my family than it was for me, right? Because my day-to-day -day was working with smart people, right? And um, working at a company. Yes, the location changed, but frankly, you know, the, it was 72 degrees inside my office uh, either way. So, um, but from a, a cultural standpoint, it definitely was um, very different. Um, Look, I went I, from a kid growing up in San Francisco and where there are lots of people that look like us to being Kentucky. And I wasn't just the uh, only Asian general counsel in Kentucky. I was the only senior executive of a public company in all of Kentucky. So um, it was good and bad from that standpoint, right? You can always look at things as half empty and half full from a glass perspective. And I felt like it was an opportunity for me to make a real difference um, in a place like that. That because they just haven't seen a lot of people who look like me who are leaders. So you were you were breaking a path. I mean, you were you were a, it, it was a relatively new thing for that community, probably to have somebody like you in a senior business position with your background. Yes, but I mean that that wasn't an intent. The, the intent was just sure. to, to you know it was a really interesting opportunity. Um, the entire leadership team was exported, so um, we were none of us were. Um, so one of the, my CFO grew up in Kentucky, but he was working the East Coast and came back. But for the rest of us, it was all, um, this was just a great company. It's a privilege to be able to uh, lead it. And it was a great opportunity to be there. Now, did your family come with you right away or did they stay behind a bit and then delay their move? How, how did you work that out? Yeah, they, they stayed behind for about a year, year and a half. Yeah. So I commuted every weekend. Um, it was a fun little commute. There's no direct flight from San Diego to Louisville, Kentucky. 
and the time also my uh, my wife was pregnant with our um, second child. So that's why they didn't move right away. They didn't want to move her um, from her doctors and all that. So which meant, and being the Asian in me, I actually calculated it, uh, about 75% chance I was going to miss the birth of my second child. Um, but being a, a luck would have it, I actually made it back. I got back home on Friday night and got into my house at midnight and my wife's water broke at 1 a.m. So yeah, didn't miss a thing. That's a tough period though, right? You must have logged a lot of miles flying back and forth. Yes, but it was, you know, I was young, so it was easy. Um, yeah. A little harder now. I've been on planes now and it hurts now, but back then it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was maybe you're, maybe you're, you're a little bit less limber. Exactly. That and, uh, and all-nighters and all that kind of stuff, are, it's all uh, different now. I was, uh, I was in my early 30s. Now, you were in Louisville for about six years. I think you did. You enjoyed the job a lot, did very well. You dealt with a whole variety of issues, including regulatory issues uh, across multiple jurisdictions. And we talked about that along the way. And then you moved back to San Diego and took another role. So tell us about that transition. Well, you know, my, um, we kept our house in San Diego the entire time. So my family loved San Diego. So an opportunity to, to move to San Diego to be general counsel of Petco, the retailer, couldn't say no um, to that. It was a chance for us to move back into our old house. And we had spent all the summers and, and holidays there during, during our six years in Churchill. So it was a, a move from a location standpoint. It was also different. You know, I was in gaming for six years and I love challenges. Yeah. And the thought of, of being a general counsel for a retailer uh, from a pretty iconic one, um, couldn't say no to it. And now you're in a brand new role again. So you took that in, in 2018. And so tell us about your current role, which I think when I think back and compare it to your prior roles, this one is more complex, bigger, more, you know, more um, global and much broader geographic reach. Um, and all of it happening, of course, during uh, the early parts of the pandemic. Uh, so tell us about how that change came about. Were you looking for another role at that, at that time? You had just joined PECO two years ago. Did somebody come knocking on your door out of the blue? What happened? Yeah, it was a recruiter um, knocking on my door out of the blue. Um, and I wasn't looking. Uh, definitely was not looking to move out of San Diego. My wife and, and kids were very, very happy there. Mm. But the more I learned about the role, the more I couldn't say no. So I'm a JL today. Been here about three and a half years. Uh, we are a real estate services company, uh, Fortune 200. And uh, get to lead a team of 175 lawyers worldwide. Um, we have about 95,000 employees worldwide. And um, it's, it's just a, been an amazing, fun challenge um, from that standpoint. So thought about uh, coming here to lead this team and uh, trying to meet everyone. And then the pandemic hits and can't travel anymore um, for a guy who's got a global reach, um, a global company with a team that's globally to learn very, very um, differently how to manage a team when you couldn't see them. Uh, mm. After that, then my CEO is based in Frankfurt, Germany. So I ended up not seeing him for about 13 months um, until we got him a visa to come to the US um, uh, middle of last year. So it's, uh, it was a lot of pivoting, but it was, it's definitely a different role than what I had before, but it's also the same in a lot of ways, right? It's a public company. It's the same, um, you know, we used to say an M&A, a small M&A and a large M&A is the same deal. It's the same documents. It's just you know, larger numbers. So that's how I try to think about this role. So you traded su sunny Southern California for the, for the Arctic freeze of Chicago. 
Absolutely. It's uh, it's 12 degrees outside right now. <laughs> so do you, I mean, it's been what, a little over three years now? Yeah. Going on four? Do you feel settled? Do you feel like you're fully integrated and, you know, hitting around running full speed? I mean, is, how's it going? So I don't think I ever feel settled. And that's just a personality trait. I always feel like there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to relationships to build, um, all that. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is, yes, I do feel like I finally, I, I'm beginning to understand the business. I'm beginning to understand the people. So there is a comfort in that. Um, but I don't, I don't think I ever use the word settle. Um, that's just not in my uh, vocabulary. So I, I want to uh, just think back over the arc of your career, um, you know, the, the tremendous um, roles you've taken along the way, each one more complicated than the one before, and you keep ascending through the profession, taking on more and more complicated assignments. Um, each job you change, of course, and each one, new one you take involves yet another transition professionally. Um, and, you know, people often wonder how, how they make that change. You know, what are the key ingredients to a successful transition? Um, I mean, what can you generalize about that? When you think back over all of the times you've changed jobs, what was hard about them, things that went well, things that didn't go well, are there certain things you would advise people about in terms of how to do that effectively based on your own experience uh, and based on kind of lessons learned and mistakes made? I think you have to have a hole in your head to, uh, to go in and purposely do this because you are um, moving a lot, right? And I mentioned before, it's much harder than a family that is on me. Right. By the way, I think you must have a lot of holes in your head, Alan. <laughs> yeah, you're the one who thinks that way. Um, but the reality is, you know, the reason I say that is, you know, I have no choice. The moment I take the job, you, you dive in both feet and you have to learn to adapt and, and do all that. And you have a ready-made set of colleagues that you have to get to learn in relationships, right? Versus, you know, my family. Like my kids have to make new friends. My wife has to move communities. So it's very, very different and very, very hard. Uh, from that standpoint, and do not underestimate that one bit. With that said, I have the privilege of doing this. I mean, I wouldn't do it if I didn't want to do it. So it's it's fun. It's really fun to get to learn um, new things, learn new businesses, um, and add value, right? And to feel like you're constantly adding something uh, to the mix. There's a number of things uh, that were similar and also different in every transition, right? It's the same concepts, right? Building relationships, learning the business, learning people, learning your team, making sure um, you know you listen. There's a reason why they gave us two years and one mouth, right? Listen twice as much as you talk. They're also very similar because they are the same things you do, right? It's just different businesses, different people. So being um, agile enough to be able to shift um, and along the way. I mean, how do you know that you're ready for a change? You know, there are people who will spend the entire career in one or two places and have very successful careers and enjoy that a lot. In your case, you've actually made changes with some frequency and taken on bigger challenges each step of the way. How do you know it's time to make a change? How would you advise somebody who's thinking about that career choice? Uh, you know, what questions to ask themselves about that? I'm not sure you ever know um, if it's time to make a change. You do know that, that whether you're excited about making the change or not whether you're excited about the opportunity. That's the way I gauge it. When I was at Petco, I was talking to my wife about this job and my wife loves San Diego, as I mentioned before. And she asked me this question, you know, what makes you think you're qualified to take on this job? And from her perspective, you can understand it, right? Because, you know, we're finally a place that she loves and I'm going to take on this challenge of an industry I've never been in. 
leading a team that's much bigger than I've ever had, um, legal team. So what happens if I fail was the genesis between her question. And I thought about for about 30 seconds, uh, try to cut out their the, uh, voice in my head that says, well, thanks a lot for their, uh, for their, for their confidence. <laughs> but the reality for me was, you know, I've been, uh, I've been unqualified before and somehow succeeded. And that's, that's how I think about it, right? Um, you know, yes, I don't have the, the industry experience. Yes, these are new things, but the skills that I have in order to gotten to this point um, were also the things that I'm ready to lean in on um, to, to do the job, right? It's the same set of skills um, of leading people, right? And learning businesses and having good judgment. That's all we do as lawyers. So, I mean, what something gave you the confidence, Alan, um, to switch industries, to jump from city to city, to go from small company, privately held to publicly owned companies, and nonetheless think that you can pull it off, that you can overcome the challenges. Uh, it's not that you might have been without self-doubt, because all of us have doubts, but somehow you were able to convince yourself and your family, as it turns out, that you could take on the new role, whichever it happened to be along the way. So where does that confidence come from? You know, I think, you know, genetics, right? My parents left countries, right? Into a country they didn't speak English to. Um, you know, they first they left China to go to Hong Kong, but then moved from Hong Kong to this country and left their careers for that. So I think, and all of us, you know, have ancestral heritage that comes from that, regardless of how conservative they are today. You know, at some point they were not conservative. So I keep reminding my parents of that every time they, they worry about one of my decisions. Um, but also just from a, 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 a personal standpoint, your know, confidence comes from preparation, right? Confidence comes from knowing what you're doing, right? And putting the work in. Um, you know, the harder I work, the, the more that I've been exposed to it, that's where the confidence comes in because I've done it before, right? Um, the first time leaving a law firm to join a startup scared out of my mind. Right, complete malpractice. Um, what I was doing probably as a third year being a general counsel. I was a corporate securities lawyer, and they're handing me patents, they're handing me you know employment issues. I mean, that's much scarier than what I do today. Right, the industry's changed, but it's the exact same things I've seen over and over again. Well, I mean, uh, it's 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 remarkable when you think about uh, the different changes you've made. Um, and it seems from someone looking from the outside that industry knowledge or or expertise isn't all that important. In, in the roles you've taken, because you've, you've changed industries in dramatic fashion. And nonetheless, your employer is saying to you, we want you, even though you may know nothing about our particular industry because of X, Y, and Z. So what is it do you think employers are looking for when they're looking for a general counsel that goes beyond substantive knowledge of the, of the business or the industry or the law? So I think only part of that statement is true, right? Because I think they are looking for someone who understands their business. They're just not requiring it from day one. Right? Because at the end of the day, we have to understand the business. So it's that demonstrated knowledge that we will understand the business to die trying, right? And get up to speed very quickly um, and to do that. Now, beyond that, hopefully, yeah, look, if they ask my bosses when they're interviewing me why they hired me, but hopefully it's because I've demonstrated um, the ability to have, um, to be able to lead not just my team, but also lead others that are outside of my team, to lead my colleagues and to be able to work with them. Also, most things that we deal with, you know, it's, a, it's all about judgment, right? Because if you have a matter and, you know, it's popped up 500 times and everybody's done it, all 500 people have done it the exact same way. Well, 
you know, you don't need me to do it. Any trained monkey can make that decision. Where the hard part in all this is um, when you have to figure out, is this fact pattern closer to A or B? And how's the judge or jury gonna think? Is it gonna be closer to A or B? And there's no answer, right? You're gonna be judged on hindsight on that. Um, and those are judgment calls that um, have to make and the ability to ask the right questions and to get to the source of the issue and, and to figure out which side is closer. I think that um, translates um, beyond industries, beyond companies. So, I mean, your answer just is a great segue to my next topic. I wanna to talk about um, leadership and management skills um, and how important they are to being a successful general counsel. So let's just start though by defining what you mean by leadership and management. What does it mean to lead and manage a legal team? Um, you know, what's really involved? I think there are, the easiest way to answer that question is, um, you know, I am not judged by what I do. I'm judged by what my team does, right? Um, so at the end of the day, it's how well I can get my team to work, work together, to work on behalf of the company, to do our job. Right. So it's a number of different things. It's hard. You know, people talk about leadership. They have classes on this and, and semesters and, and um, on this. So I can't distill in two minutes. But the easiest way I think about it is um, I work for my team. Right. So um, it's my ability to make sure that my team has everything that they need to do their job, to do their job well, um, whether that is resources, whether that is uh, ability to collaborate with each other, with me. Um, whether they uh, need to understand the business a little better, whether it's a little bit of coaching, right? All those things are are involved in trying to get the most out of my team. And that to me is leadership and that to me is management to some extent. That's how I really take a view of, you know, these are people who do all the work and I need to work for them. Alan, when you look back over kind of your life, would you say that you were a natural leader? That you have always been a leader, even as a little kid? Or do you think it's something you grew into as, as your jobs expanded? I think it's definitely something that is learned, right? There's a certain element of that. You have to be a little bit comfortable or uncomfortable uh, with it. But definitely, I look back and, um, at my life and especially professionally and how I am as a leader today versus I was even a year and a half ago, right? Um, how, how I am as a leader today is very much different than I was a year and a half ago uh, before COVID. Um, and there's lots of growing and learning involved in all that. Um, there's also some of it's, you know, being naturally on it, right? Are you the guy who raised your hand to be captain uh, and picking the basketball team, you know, right? And the schoolyard, or are you just uh, uh, okay with just being a member of the team and getting picked? Um, for me, I like being the captain. I like to make sure that I pick the right team. Otherwise, uh, I get picked last, you know, not exactly the most athletic guy out there. So you're, you're telling me you were bossy from an early age. I'm not sure if I was bossy. I think it's much more of a making sure that I pick the teams, I can pick the strongest players. Yeah. Do you think you're a better leader and manager today than you were when you took your first in-house role? Absolutely. So, so tell me how you think you've gotten better and what, and what dimensions and what ways are you actually better? Look, I spent the early part of my career trying to, um, to tell everyone that was around me how good a lawyer I am. And I'm spending an enormous amount of time in this part of my career trying to tell them how I'm not a lawyer. That's one way of thinking about it. The early part of my career, it was defined by how well I did, right? And in this role and in my roles in the last decade, it's been defined by how well I can lead my team, how well my team does, right? And being empathetic, right? Be understand. So 
great examples in the last year and a half when the pandemic hit, our whole lives changed, everyone's lives changed. But for my team, especially, right? I had people who suddenly became uh, homeschool teachers for their kids. I had others who were um, uh, locked down in, in parts of the world that where lockdown actually meant lockdown, not like this fake lockdown that we have in the US where they literally couldn't leave the apartment for months on end. So, and we have others who've lost family members. So different people are in different circumstances and you have to understand that. And you can't leap on one way to everybody and be able to build those connections and be able to make sure that the team members have what they need uh, for their lives, uh, not just for their jobs, right? I don't think a, the, the 30 year old me cared any part of that about that. All I cared about was trying to, uh, to run hard um, on that. So it's definitely different. Well, it sounds like you had some natural leadership um, tendencies, even as uh, earlier in your life. And so you built on that uh, and you clearly have gotten better at it over the years, as you said, um, as you've taken on bigger roles. Are there still some things about leading and managing that you find really challenging where you have to keep working at it to keep getting better at it because it may not come as naturally to you as other parts of the leadership role? Well, everything, all parts of it, right? Um, walking into a meeting where I didn't, don't know people, right? Forcing yourself to, to meet folks um, and to shake hands. Are you, are you an extrovert? Are you an introvert? How would you characterize yourself? I think a little bit of both, right? Um, I learned to be more extroverted when I need to be. I definitely have a light switch, as my family calls it, um, where I can uh, turn that off um, because I don't want to be on all the time. But when I need to be, I think you need to be. Um, but there's all kinds of, of things that you have to do uh, on this, right? I went from uh, being able to travel and see my, my team uh, person to person to going two years. And I still haven't seen most of my team in Asia um, for two plus years now, except through this, through, through this medium. So um, make sure that you keep those connections with people and, and that you know what's going on with people in their families and their lives. That's all important. All that you're, you're constantly learning, and some of it's not, um, it's uncomfortable. That's why I said it's some of it's comfortable and some of it's uncomfortable, but that's the, the good part because you want to be uncomfortable. That's how you learn, that's how you grow. Did you make mistakes along the way? <laughs> of course. And would you care to share any of them with us without naming names or being specific as to you know, company or, or context? But just generically, give, give us an example of a mistake you made that you learn from. And you've drawn from since then? Well, there's a million mistakes to, to that I've made in my life. Um, but look, give us the biggest one. <laughs> let's not do that. I, I do a pretty good job of trying to hide those mistakes. I mean, part of what we do as general counsel, right? But absolutely. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it can be as, as simple as, um, you know, showing up to a meeting and not wearing a tie when you're supposed to, to as big as, you know, not caring about relationships that were really important and not spending enough time building those um, relationships. Um, in this role, sometimes you know, people have a preconceived notion when you walk in the door, whether it's because, uh, of, the, uh, because of the fact that we're lawyers um, or the fact that, that we're Asian, you know, whatever else, people have a preconceived notion who we are. And if we don't sit there and consciously um, show them who we are, that stereotype can persist. And, you know, when you don't make those relationships, then they think of me as who they think I am versus who I really am. It's, it must be hard, though, to build relationships with, in your case, 175 lawyers scattered across the world. 
I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the pandemic and the challenges that that has posed in terms of both transitioning to your new company, but also, also leading and managing the legal team. What are the things you've had to do in this environment that were different from before, uh, given the context we're in, given the constraints that we're living under? Yeah, look, I think we all were learning, right, when the pandemic hit and trying to learn how um, Zoom and everything worked, right? How many, uh, how many Zoom happy hours did we go to a year and a half ago versus today, right? Everyone was trying to do that, and now they don't exist anymore. We're all trying to learn how to connect. So one of the things that I recognized very quickly was that not all my team members um, you know, were the same on this medium, right? So you know, when you ask extroverted, introverted, um, look, in a Zoom, when you have like 20 people on a Zoom, um, you literally have to interrupt someone in order to speak. Um, and some people are just not comfortable with that, right? And understanding that from my own team members, recognizing that in the meeting itself to making sure that you know, those team members um, that were not as comfortable to speak, that they were given the opportunity to speak, that they need to be heard and I wanna hear them. But that in itself is not good enough sometimes, right? It's also be able to reach out to them one-on-one -on -one to figure out what's going on in their lives. Um, look, one of the things I, I worry about this is that I think most of us like where we work because we like working with our colleagues. Mm. Two years into this thing, um, we started losing that because you don't see your colleagues every day, right? So that's what collaboration really means to me. It's not just merely collaborating with your clients, which you can do pretty well in this medium, but it's collaborating and being able to just have lunch with your colleagues and be able to chat and talk about family and life, right? And so I'm spending all the time trying to foster that within my team, uh, making sure that, that those connections are kept up in a real meaningful way, not just a, a um, superficial way, which sometimes it can be when you're not seeing the person face-to-face. -face. I'm gonna to switch topics and, and touch on something you touched on a second ago, actually uh, on a couple of occasions. You, you mentioned you know, being an Asian lawyer or being an Asian in a profession where Asians have only joined the party relatively recently. Now we've made great strides. Asians are in law schools now in record numbers, a lot of Asians in, in prominent positions, but by and large, Asians are still vastly underrepresented in the leadership positions in the legal profession. So talk a little bit about your challenge, the challenges you face being an Asian lawyer in America. Well, it's hard to, to separate whether it, the challenges are because of Asian lawyer in America or because it's me um, as a lawyer in America. But I think the point that you pointed out is, is very relevant, right? Um, I think the, depending on the numbers that you choose, there's 10, 15, 20% of us graduating the top law schools in America um, that um, start out in large law firms that are also in-house, in right? Somewhere around 10, 15% of us. And less than 5% of us are general counsels of Fortune 500 companies. And less than 5% of us are partners in Amlaw 100 law firms, right? There's a leadership gap there, right? Um, some of that, I think it's on, on us. These is not you know, culturally and um, others is not, these are not skills that we practice uh, growing up that our parents taught us that were important, right? They wanted us to be doctors and engineers. You don't necessarily need to be leaders to do that. Um, but some of it uh, is perception of us, right? Because we are the model minority, right? How many times have we heard that word? And you also see it with the violence that have, been bestowed on this community uh, in the last year and a half. I think we're easy targets. We're seen as meek, we're seen as weak. So I think some of that is um, perception that precedes us. So when I talk about perception of leadership and, and what they see of us, 
look, when I interview for a job, the one question I have to answer that not necessarily every other candidate has to answer is, can I lead? Um, and it's partially because there's not enough of us in leadership positions for them to necessarily uh, see that, that we're natural leaders from that. So you sense in the interview process, that question is kind of lurking in the background because of who you are and because of your background. You know, yes and no. Uh, yes, sometimes I sense it, but it's just more important that I just address it because at the end of the day, um, look, leading is important in, um, in these roles anyway. I just wanna make sure, and they're not gonna ask me that question. You know, how many times have anyone ever asked you, Larry, right? Can you lead? No one's ever gonna ask you that question in an interview. So it's about demonstrating that and walking in the room. Um, same thing with, with teams and, you know, um, and leading and town halls or whatever else is being able to command that room, being able to walk in. When people talk about um, executives, right? Most CEOs I ever work with um, have that presence, you know, walk in and they do command a room, they do command attention. Um, so it's definitely something that I have worked on. So when you ask the question, uh, am I better leader today than I was 20 years ago? And that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, being able to stand up tall and to walk in and, and maybe not feel comfortable, but at least look comfortable doing it. So Al, you, you, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that this is a question that you proactively address in opportunity in looking at jobs because whether or not it's asked, I may be lurking there and you want to hit it head on. It may be a question that the employer or prospective employer has about you. Let me flip it around. What about, what do you want to know about the company to know whether you're going to fit in and be accepted? I mean, how do you figure that out? Look, I think these are highly personal decisions about what matters to, to individuals. But what matters to me is, are they good people? Um, number one, right? Life is too short to work with people that I do not enjoy spending time with, right? So um, it's about that. It's about passion. I like working with people who are passionate about the work, right? So you mentioned six industries and six different jobs. The one thing that is in common with all these is that passion of leadership, right? They're, I want my CEO to be passionate about the company, to be passionate about selling um, whatever we're selling. Uh, I need that for my C-suite as well, that we're all in and rolling in the same direction. And so those are important. It's also just, I'm talking about the, the importance of good people, right? So much of our job is helping, right? So much of our job is helping our colleagues, helping the company exceed, succeed. And if you think about that, if you're helping people that you don't respect, eh, that's not so much fun. Um, you want to be helping people that um, you feel good about helping. At least that's how I think about it. Well, I mean, if, if I think about all of the qualities you mentioned that are required to become an effective general counsel, whether it's leadership, management, communication, building relationships, empathy, understanding, um, very little of that has to do with law. Uh, or what we might've learned in law school, or even as young lawyers in a law firm starting our careers. And so these are things that, that come along later in life and need to be built on to be successful. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, right? Like I said, you know, so much of my life now is, uh, is trying to convince people I'm not a lawyer, right? It's just being another guy in a room to, to have another um, uh, voice in the room and to have thoughts. Um, to add to the business discussion, but also with an eye towards you know, how do we think about these risks? How do we manage them? How is this gonna be perceived in the world? Not just by a judge and jury, but also by our various constituents, whether they're our employees, our investors, our customers, and just having that eye towards that, 
and that we're uniquely trained for to some extent. We might not have been trained in law school for it, but we've definitely been trained throughout our career to look at, you know, how will someone look at this? How would this story play to a jury? How would this story play to a judge? Well, it's the same thing. How would this story play to our customers in the press? Well, I'm going to do, uh, we're near the end of our time. I'm going to do a couple of uh, lightning round questions. I'm going to ask you a couple of things, uh, statements and ask you to react yes or no to them and just explain to me why you think uh, the way you do. So here's a proposition. To be an effective general counsel, you must know everything about everything, or at least give that impression, even if it means faking it. No way. <laughs> well, wh why do you say that? So let's, you're, let's say you're in a senior executive business discussion and a legal question comes up. You may not know the answer, but what, how will you address it then in, in real time? You don't just say, I don't have the answer. Sorry. Well, look, it depends what the question is, right? And, and is it something that we can think through and walk through and ask the right questions to get a little more information? But then the day, it's our credibility right? We are in a profession where we're judged by the one thing that we do wrong. So if you guess, you're going to be wrong uh, half the time or more. Uh, and I'm not interested in that, right? So but at the same time, you don't have time to sit there and research every single thing, right? It's about how you discuss and how you think about it and how we think about it together. Yeah. And sometimes what you got to do is have enough credibility to buy time to come back with the answer, right? Absolutely. Right. I mean, look, some basic stuff you have to know, like, you know, but most things, it, it's much more important to be thoughtful than to be quick. All right. I'll, let me end with this one. Business leaders think the legal function can and should be managed just like any other business activity. They're just wrong. Law is different. <sighs> that one, huh? I don't think it's necessarily wrong. There's nuances to, to it, right? Um, I think lawyers are just different to some extent. I think that being in a business, there is inherently you do have to be managed like a business. We have a P&L, right? There's a set of resources that we're uh, um, stewards of, that our job is to make sure that we provide the legal service in the company in the best and most effective manner possible. That sometimes is cost, that sometimes does not equal cost, right? Um, but it's, uh, we're not we're not a law firm within a company, right? We are part of the company. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Let me uh, end with this. You're a busy guy. You're going a, a million miles an hour all the time. If you had three weeks of free time, um, unburdened by emails and texts and Zoom calls, how would you spend that time? Where would you go and what would you do? First of all, I don't think I would ever be comfortable in a job where I can be gone for three weeks. Um, but um, given that that's the hypo and I shouldn't fight the hypo. As a, well, make it one week, take one week. No, it, it'll be uh, with my kids uh, in someplace uh, tropical, right? I love the water, whether it's a beach on a boat, uh, something, but with my kids and just be able to enjoy time together. Alan, thank you so much. This was, uh, was great fun speaking with you and learning uh, about your life and your career and your insights and perspectives. Thank you so much. Thanks, Larry.